Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, um, this is Natasha Margolis with the New Books Network. Um, this is the podcast for genocide studies. And today I'll be interviewing Claudia, Claudia Moscovici. Um, her new book, Holocaust Memories, a survey of Holocaust memoirs, histories, novels, and films, has been written to reach out to uh, colleges and high schools and to engage younger audiences and their teachers in um, getting across the message of the Holocaust Center. And I really am glad that you're here with me today, Claudia. Would you like to tell us about yourself? Oh, thank you so much for the interview, Natasha. So um, a Romanian immigrant, I came here at a very young age, um, at 11, almost 12. And one of my dreams came, uh, I left me um under dictatorship, under the dic- communist dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu. And one of my dreams was always to get to tell that story about the lost era of communism um, to future generations. So even uh, when I was in college at Princeton, I was thinking um, I wanted to be an academic and um, study French romanticism and enlightenment. But at the same time, I really wanted to be a fiction writer, a historical fiction writer, and get to tell um, the story kind of in a way that the movie Lives of Others told it, where you really get to see how the secret police and communist governments functioned and intruded upon your lives and um, spied on people and um, the daily fear they had to live with. So um, eventually, I became a professor, but after about 10 years of teaching, I decided that I really wanted to write that novel about communist Romania and the anti-communist revolution, and I did. And that was my first work of fiction, Velvet Totalitarianism, um, which was published here and then translated in Romania and launched in Bucharest, too. Um, and then I became extremely interested in uh, the theme of psychopathy and pathology because I noticed a lot of the dictators, be it Stalin or Hitler or Ceausescu, had certain pathologies like malignant narcissism or psychopathy. They were men extremely motivated by need to control others and power. And so I spent a few years studying psychology and particularly uh, read books like Robert Hare's Without Conscience and um, a lot of books on uh, psychopathy, narcissism and borderline personality disorder to figure out what makes people who need to control others tick. And also how when they assume power, um, they can be so callous and ruthless. Often they are the ones that lead genocides and um, 
caused the worst atrocities um, in human history. And I published two books about psychopathy. One is called Dangerous Liaisons. And the book almost personalizes the theme of psychopathy because psychopaths and malignant narcissists are not just the dictators in uh, totalitarian regimes or in autocracies that uh, perpetrate crimes against humanity, but often they are people you can, excuse me, meet day to day. They can be um, bosses that like to exert power and arbitrary control. They can be um, partners that you think seem perfect, but that perfection is a mask. And underneath it is a desire for increasing control um, and even sadism. And I also wrote a novel about one such relationship, which was kind of inspired by um, what I had studied as a scholar. Um, since I had studied 18th and 19th century fiction in comparative literature, I, one of my favorite novels was Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. And I was thinking, what if I make, follow the structure of Anna Karenina, the same tragic structure ending in the heroine's death, but instead of having Prince Vronsky, who is this charismatic, seductive, um, rake, I guess, lover. Um, he's not malicious, but he does use women, and that's part of what leads to Anna Karenina's tragedy. What if it, I make Vronsky be a psychopath, somebody much more calculated, much more callous, much more predatory? Like the dangerous people, any of us can encounter and at first, we would not know it because they have a very compelling mask of sanity. And so The Seducer, my second novel, is about one such um, love affair that ends in tragedy. And once again, keeping on the theme of um, dictatorships with which I started my uh, writing career outside the academia, I wanted to go back to the era concomitant to, uh, to totalitarian communism, um, to Hitler's era, to fascism. And one of my motivations, like for Velvet, totalitarianism was personal because um, my grandfather is Jewish and he always walked with a limp and uh, couldn't see out of one eye. And I was too young for him to explain what exactly had happened. But what I was given to understand was that it was the Romanian fascist that basically maimed him um, on the way to and from a labor camp, forced labor camp that Jews in the area had to go to. So that got me uh, researching the Holocaust in Romania. And then um, I decided that I, I became very interested in the Holocaust in each European country where it happened and in every genre that I could cover 
to write a general audience book of reviews that could help um, high school teachers as well as college professors give a kind of survey of the Holocaust as opposed to focus just on one or two books, one or two countries um, of this human catastrophe. What I think I really liked about the setup of your book is you've taken 60 different pieces about the Holocaust and what you have called reviews are really these these cognizant looks at each of these works under um, this lens that you have placed under your methodology. I wanted to ask you about the influence of Hannah Arendt and um, Raul Halberg on, on your writing and on your putting together this book. Well, um, I borrowed a little from both. Um, you are right. From Raul Hilberg, what I borrowed is this notion of an intellectual who cares deeply about the subject, in this case, the Holocaust, and writes for a general audience. And I have noticed in my years in the academia that um, such uh, academic writing, for the most part, tends to be very specialized and gives insight to other scholars influence, um, interested in a given subject. But there are certain historians and intellectuals that really aim to write for a general audience. And I think the theme of the Holocaust is it's very important to reach as many people as possible. And um, so that's what I got from Raoul Hilberg's histories, the sense of personal commitment and passion for the subject, which I share, as well as uh, prioritizing writing for a general audience and for students. Um, from Hannah Arendt, I got a more categorization type of methodology, looking at how ideology shapes history, how ideology shapes masses. Um, I, I found her analysis of masses versus classes very useful, because at some point the ideology becomes so compelling for group, groups of people, and often those are very dangerous ideologies motivated by hatred and reducing other categories of humans to subhuman status, and that they become no longer classes able to think in terms of their class interests or individuals able to think rationally about politics or um, social mores. It becomes the masses, this lump overtaken by a very reductive ideology that can be very poisonous and dangerous. And the other thing I, I took from her was in her discussion of Eichmann in Jerusalem, she is famous for articulating a notion of the banality of evil, which has been much discussed since it was published. And Given the fact that I studied psychopathy for about six, seven years previously, I was trying to argue against her, along with other uh, biographers of Eichmann and historians, that really Eichmann is not the best example of the banality of evil. I think Eichmann was extraordinary. He went out of his way to make sure that the Hungarian Jews um, in the summer, in, in the spring and summer 
1944, when Germany was already losing the war, he made sure that over 400,000 Hungarian Jews were sent to Auschwitz or pushed in the river to die, but most of them sent to Auschwitz. So that degree of thoroughness and tenacity in genocide is not banal at all or ordinary. So um, I kind of used her analysis of Eichmann in Jerusalem as a point of departure to argue against that. At the same time, interestingly, I do think the banality of evil was very useful in explaining something like Christopher Browning, historian Christopher Browning, discusses in Ordinary Men. And that book centers around a police battalion made mostly of middle-aged Germans from all walks of life, mostly middle class, who were not trained SS officers, who were not uh, Nazi ideologues, but who ended up being extremely effective killers. Initially, they had hes- they hesitated, but in the end, they ended up even throwing babies against walls to kill them, Jewish babies against walls, to kill them more effectively. Um, so that shows the banality of evil that Hannah Rent was talking about, that when a totalitarian ideology takes over a country, it can make even regular people dehumanize others to the point where they have no conscience against um, harming the innocent. So her concept was very useful in um, a lot of what happened in Nazi Germany or other fascist regimes, but I don't think it's useful in discussing Eichmann, who was, I think, a classic case of a psychopath. And you brought up Christopher Browning, who is on one, one of the reviews is of the book that you were talking about. Um, you've also have included in your book, Elie Wiesel's Night, um, Imre Kertesz's Fatelessness, a lot of other works that are traditionally used in genocide and Holocaust studies, and you've married them with more recent materials that maybe uh, the current generation might find more attractive with the Monuments Men movie with George Clooney. Um, you. Yeah. I added, of course, Schindler's List, and you kind of have mixed some genres to carry forward and to bring from the past this interest in the Holocaust. Uh, how did you go about picking um, just 60 out of out of all the uh, literature and books and films and memoirs that are out there? What did you use as your guide besides these this methodology of a rent? Well, I had a sense of goal, but um, I realized that I could not be exhaustive. And in fact, for any kind of survey, you're going to have people legitimately say, why didn't you include this? For example, I included Schindler's List, Monuments Men, um, The Woman in Gold films, but I didn't include the long film on the Holocaust, Shoah. So it's like at every point I had to choose. I can choose because this I wanted this book to be usable and readable, and therefore around 200 pages, pretty standard book. Um, So part of my choices were I wanted to choose both more contemporary works that uh, high school students and college students can relate to and might have even seen, or and also 
um, actual Holocaust memoirs. I wanted to uh, choose different genres, memoir, fiction, and film. I wanted to make sure each country um, that suffered during the Holocaust was represented. And I wanted to also um, make my subjective interests vi uh, visible, I guess, because um, no study is completely objective and it's influenced by what the writer has an interest or a passion for. And so I spent about four to five reviews just on Romania, which I studied uh, thoroughly. The other thing I wanted uh, was to make sure that the countries that were at the center of the Holocaust also got more coverage. So Poland probably has eight to nine chapters focused on it because it was the seat of the concentration camps and um, during the Nazi occupation and um, one of the centers of the Jewish ghettos, which were also very interesting in themselves, um, perhaps as interesting as Auschwitz, because that is how the ethnic cleansing began. And um, it, in a way, it's telling that none of this process began with, with direct genocide. It began gradually with discriminatory Nuremberg laws, conquest of countries like Austria, who was annexed more than conquered, um, and parts of Czechoslovakia, and then the entire Czechoslovakia and Poland. It began with isolation of the Jewish population. So it's a gradual process that creeps in and can happen um, in modern contexts as well if, if people are not vigilant about the, lot, the ideologies that um, dehumanize other groups and that no longer um, render us em empathic towards them. Uh, what I really liked um, the way that you built up each of your sections is they're feeding off each other and also moving things forward. So by the time you get to the last part of your book, you've, you're discussing genocides as a whole. And you have introduced to the readers, um, you know, more prominent examples of genocide than just the Holocaust. So I, I can see your goal at trying to get this, let the, this never again happen get out there by reading that last section. So that must have been the hardest section for you in some ways because it's so timely and it's so current and it's there's even more literature that you could have delved in. So how did you handle choosing the items for those section? Well, uh, like you stated, never again can mean never again the Jews. And I, I certainly, when I think of never again, it means never again any people will be subjected to this dehumanization and genocide. Um, and th there was a kind of concern because the Holocaust was uniquely targeting the Jews. The Holocaust is about the Jews. It is true also the gypsies were targeted, um, homosexuals, the mentally challenged, but really at the seat of the Holocaust was this um, demonization and hatred and fear of the Jews. 
So I wanted that to take center stage in the book. But at the same time, I wanted to show there was a precedent for it in the Armenian genocide during World War One, and that this these genocides continued under the right conditions or the wrong conditions um, in other countries and in more modern contexts. And a lot of the readers will have lived through some of them, like the genocide in Rwanda. And it isn't just fasc fascist countries that perpetrated. It's sometimes authoritarian regimes, sometimes communist regimes like Pol Pot in Cambodia. Um, so I think that without losing the uniqueness of the Holocaust as targeting the Jews, we do have to keep in mind other genocides because just because some, something is a unique historical event doesn't mean that analogous events don't happen. And so I wanted to have it both ways. Focus on the Jewish Holocaust, but at the same time show who were the other victims and how this occurred at different moments in history under different regimes, but with very similar conditions. And um, those conditions often are scapegoating a certain group, dehumanizing a certain group, and it often happens in authoritarian regimes, if not downright totalitarian regimes. So totalitarianism in itself, be it right-wing, fascist or left-wing communist is extremely dangerous. I think one of the great selling points about your book is it's, as you said, around 200 pages. So it's usable in a lot of different classroom scenarios. It's affordable. It has an ebook, And um, not only is it extremely interesting, um, your perceptions and your writing, but it's extraordinarily clear. And a lot of um, works on the Holocaust kind of lose that in, in the midst of it all. So I wanted to thank you for letting me talk to you about this really important book and introducing it to an audience that hopefully can use it themselves and um, bring it to into their classrooms. Um, I was also, do you have anything you are currently working on or any projects that you are imagining for your future? Well, one thing I do want to um, add to this is that um, education is often political, too. And um, I was very encouraged as I was writing this book by the Never Again Holocaust Education Act, which has bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate, and several states have passed it, which makes it either mandatory or it's highly suggested, encouraged, um, that high schools teach the Holocaust. And one of the things I want to add to that is um, not only to reach out to those politicians who support this so that more states pass the um, Holocaust, Never Again Holocaust Education Act and hopefully passes on a federal level, but also um, that, you know, there is a vehicle. I mean, I wrote this book as a vehicle where you teach the Holocaust, not just through one or two texts, the most common text, and it's, of course, one of the most seminal texts, is the Diary of Anne Frank. It is 
authentic, it is tragic, it is very well known, and it is something that students can relate to because it's, it's the diary of somebody their age. But I think it's important to get teachers as well as students exposed to more memoirs and more background books such as histories of the perpetrators and the victims and and more countries that suffered under fascist regimes when where the holocaust happened um if we just look at the uh, diary of anne frank then we learn something about holland but we don't learn about the holocaust in france in romania in poland and so i'm trying i was trying to have a kind of vehicle educational tool for the Never Again Education Act so that teachers can choose among a, a wide variety of memoirs and countries and focus on more than what is traditionally taught in American high schools about how, the Holocaust. As far as my next project goes, uh, I was extremely moved by uh, one particular story, and that was the story of Janusz Korczak, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correct in, uh, correctly in Korczak, I think, in Polish, but he was the leader of the orphans in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he was also um, one of the forerunners of more uh, student-centered education where you don't use corporal punishment as was commonly used in the 19th and beginning 20th century in schools to discipline students. So he was a progressive in every way. He even set up a Polish orphanage, not just a Jewish orphanage, and had the kids have a children's republic where they held court against each other. Like if a child stole it was like a little Senate and judges that um, adjudicated uh, what the punishment should be, what the proof was. And um, he had so many opportunities to escape to the, to the so-called Aryan side, the Polish side, from the Warsaw Ghetto once it was walled in. But he stuck by his or 200 orphans and he went to them with them to the end, even boarding the train to Treblinka to calm them down and to perhaps even foster the illusion that they were not going to their deaths. But it, it, it was one of the most uh, heart-wrenching stories among so many heart-wrenching true stories that I have read that um, I would love to write a historical novel about that in the future. Well, it sounds like a very good topic for you because of your interdisciplinary abilities and your comparative literature background. I mean, you write beautifully, uh, you grab the reader, and um, you certainly keep, even though there's 60 different reviews, you, you keep a continuous pattern going. So we know that your voice is constant throughout. And I think um, for you to write another historical novel based on something that is this passionate of a topic for you. I really look forward to it. Thank you, Claudia, for your time Thank today. You so much. I really appreciate you um, 
giving me the opportunity to read your book first and then talk to you second. And um, I hope that the listeners at the New Books Network uh, go out and get your book as soon as they can. So, uh, thank, you. thank you so much, Natasha. Thank you.